My guest this week is author and Middle East fellow at the Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, Christian Coates Ulrichson. Christian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. So on Friday, we heard of the death of Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nayan, the president of the United Arab Emirates. There's been a huge international reaction to this event. Why is it so significant? Well, the UAE is one of the most important political, economic and security partners of the United Kingdom, the US and other Western countries in the in the Gulf. It's got uh, huge oil reserves, especially in Abu Dhabi. And over the past 15 to 20 years, both Abu Dhabi and Dubai have really risen to international prominence. And so the UAE has become heavily embedded in regional international events. And so this uh, passing of its ruler, even though it's been on the cards for some time, uh, has been obviously something that has grabbed international attention. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been since 2014 mm-hmm. when the, the now president, Mohammed bin Zayed, has been the, the crown prince and effectively the, the de facto ruler of of the United Arab Emirates. And he's become a really powerful figure within the Gulf and the the Middle East. So how will his accession to the the presidency and making his power official, if you like, how will that change the power dynamics within the region? Well, I think the short answer is that it won't change very much, just because, as you said, since 2014 at least, Mohammed bin Zayed has effectively been the de facto ruler of the UAE. The way it works is that the president of the UAE, by convention, is the ruler of Abu Dhabi. But uh, the previous ruler, Sheikh Khalifa, who passed away on Friday, he suffered a uh, debilitating stroke in 2014 and never really returned to, to public life. And so the, the transition of power and decision-making had already happened to Mohammed bin Zayed. Mm. And over the course of the last eight years, from 2014 until uh, 2022, what happened was that over time, Mohammed bin Zayed gradually put his own people in charge of all key aspects of domestic and foreign policy in the UAE. So appointing his own sons and his own uh, people around him to positions in the energy industry, in the financial industry, and into all major foreign policy positions. So to the extent that domestic and foreign policy was set, and it was a very assertive regional and foreign policy of the UAE going to war in Yemen in 2015, for example, alongside Saudi Arabia, or the UAE becoming a much more assertive uh, actor in kind of international affairs, that was already set in motion by Mohammed bin Zayed, even though on paper he was only the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. He has, however, been the de facto decision maker in the UAE for almost a decade. So in that respect, nothing will change. What will change will be that he now has head of state status. Mm. He has the gravitas that comes with it. And of course, in terms of Gulf politics, he now outranks Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, whereas until uh, Friday, they were both the crown princes. They were both the crown princes of Abu Dhabi and and Saudi, and now one is a head of state and the other one is still a crown prince. So that could have a, an interesting dynamic in sort of intra-Gulf relationships, given that Mohammed bin Zayed is often seen as the, uh, the mentor, almost like a father figure to Mohammed bin Salman. That power dynamic is, is certainly going to be an interesting uh, aspect of Middle Eastern politics to watch over the, the next few months and 
and, and years. And as you say, by being crown princes, they were both seen as equals and they've been real drivers of change in the region, most notably in recent years through the Abraham Accords, you know, yeah. the, the uh, Middle Eastern normalization of relations with Israel. But going beyond that, though, how, how, how will that power shift and that relationship change? Will, will there be a new working relationship developed between Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, or will things broadly carry on as they were? Well, they're often seen as two peas in a pod, although you should also be aware that Mohammed bin Zayed is a generation older and Mohammed bin Salman, they may have both been crown princes, but Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi is 61 years old, and Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is 36. And so they think the relationship between them initially, especially, was very much mentor and mentee, or perhaps almost like a father-son relationship. But at least they, they held a similar rank in terms of protocol. That relationship was showing signs of becoming less close, I think it was extremely close in geopolitical terms between 2015 and 2018. And that encompassed the war in Yemen, and they were also joined together against Qatar in 2017. In 2019, the UAE surprised the Saudis by unilaterally declaring that they were redeploying their troops in Yemen and kind of withdrawing most of their troops. And they did that for a kind of very cold, rational, UAE-first explanation that they figured that there was nothing more to be gained by continuing to deploy large amounts of ground forces alongside the Saudis in, in Yemen. But that caused a lot of friction. And then over the past couple of years, and especially since the pandemic hit, we've seen a lot of economic competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And especially from a Saudi side, Mohammed bin Salman is trying to push through his vision 2030, which effectively means moving into economic sectors that the UAE has had a 20-year head start in. So sectors such as tourism, travel, entertainment, hospitality. And of course, that's going to create additional economic uh, competition with the UAE. So we have seen signs of a growing, not necessarily a rivalry, but certainly a competitive element that perhaps has overtaken some of the geopolitical uh, alignments that we saw between 2014 and 2018. I don't expect it will lead to any great rupture, but I think certainly as the Gulf emerges from the pandemic, there will be more of a competition for a similar set of markets and opportunities and commercial commercial gains in, in certain areas between Saudi Arabia, between the UAE. In, in terms of protocol, then, with, with an event like the, the death of the head of the ruling family, as you'd expect within the UAE, there's, they've declared uh, days of national mourning, uh, a full three-day closure, and I think it even extends to 40 days. Uh, total mourning. But interestingly, India declared a day of national mourning on the death of Sheikh Khalifa. What, what does that signal in terms of India's foreign policy ambitions? Well, India and the UAE have long had a, a relationship. Historically, the UAE was one of uh, seven emirates that were administered by British India up until 1947. And then uh, you have uh, hundreds of thousands of Indian workers living and working in the UAE as well. And especially over the past decade, Indian uh, governments have uh, really worked to uh, deepen the political relationship. And uh, there have been several visits by Mohammed bin Zayed to, the, uh, to India and by Narendra Modi to, uh, to the UAE. So I think they see each other as uh, geopolitical heavyweights in the region. And the UAE is increasingly looking east. It's increasingly looking to Asia as the, uh, the 21st century orientation. 
and it's identified India as a major trading and political partner, I think, in that Look East policy. And in, in terms of the uh, international reception of, of this, of, of course, the, there will be leaders who will travel over the next few days to Abu Dhabi to uh, send their condolences to uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. We have the, the Sultan of Oman today visiting. Uh, tomorrow, it's expected our, our Prime Minister in the UK, Boris Johnson, as well as French President Emmanuel Macron. They, they'll travel to Abu Dhabi. And then Monday, we're expecting US Vice President Kamala Harris to, to visit Abu Dhabi as well. What could we expect would be discussed in those meetings between those leaders and the new president? Well, this does potentially offer an opportunity to try and reset some of the tensions that have been quite open over the last few months. In Back in January, the UAE came under a series of missile and rocket attacks from Houthi rebels in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And UAE leaders, well, Mohammed bin Zayed especially, were reportedly quite angry with US and UK officials for taking quite a long time to to respond and to offer support. And that was both a feature of UAE anger towards the US and also to Boris Johnson and to the UK government. So these visits, even though they're for protocol, they're to offer condolence, I think they do offer a high-level opportunity to try and draw a line under the tension over the last four months and to move forward and Also remember that there has been tension over the UAE's uh, positioning on Russia and Ukraine. And of course, there's a lot of Russian uh, money and Russian uh, investors now flocking to Dubai now that they are now finding it more difficult to live and do business in the West. So there have been tensions. And I think uh, at least on a protocol level, that could be a, a moment to try and maybe reset some of those tensions and to see if they can move forward. And just on the the Russia-Ukraine war, the UAE's position throughout this conflict has been interesting in that throughout all the the key United Nations votes in the General Assembly, they've abstained or uh, just not taken part at all or stayed relatively neutral in the the debates and the discussions. But earlier this year, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, travelled to uh, the UAE and to Saudi Arabia to try and strike new oil deals to move away from Russian energy as part of their their sanctions programme as a result of this war. So do you think, particularly for Boris Johnson on his visit to the UAE, he initially spoke to Mohammed bin Zayed in his capacity as a crown prince to try and strike a new oil deal with very limited success. Now that he's speaking to a president, do you think the, that sort of relationship can change? Do you think there will be some sort of movement on a new oil agreement? Well, I think what was striking in, in the March visit, both to the UAE and Saudi Arabia, was that Boris Johnson came away empty-handed. Hmm. And the, he wanted the Saudis and Emiratis to increase production and to effectively break the OPEC plus agreement that they have with Russia, actually, which is a, an agreement to only gradually move back to pre-pandemic levels of oil production, not to flood the market with additional barrels, which would bring the price down. And both Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi and Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi rebuffed Boris Johnson. And in fact, also another element was that two days later, after Boris Johnson came back from the UAE, you had the whole Dubai Ports World issue mm. with, the, with the ferries as well, with P&O, mm. uh, Dubai DP World being the, uh, the owner of P&O. And so that was seen as another... Uh, sort of irritant in UAE-UK relations. When Boris Johnson was there in March, he met with MBZ as crown prince, absolutely, but MBZ was, Mohammed bin Zayed was also already a de facto decision maker. So nothing will have changed in that respect. In fact, the fact that he's now head of state 
and obviously outlags Boris Johnson as head of government <laughs> means that Mohammed bin Zayed may actually feel even more emboldened, even more confident perhaps to, to sort of stand his ground and to not give in to any form of international pressure, especially as giving in to any form of international pressure might look uh, weak at the very moment that Mohammed bin Zayed is beginning his first few days as head of state. So I don't think he'll uh, be in any mood to... Uh, to compromise, and he'll make it very clear, I think, that um, the UAE is going to strike a hard bargain for any policy shift and for any moderation of its position on having, well, on, on Russia and Ukraine, and I'm not following the West in, in taking sides and backing Ukraine. And of course, we're expecting Boris Johnson to go there tomorrow, but also Emmanuel Macron will be visiting, and France and the UAE have been deepening relations quite rapidly over the last few years. And I suppose the, the flagship statements within that has been the opening of the Louvre Museum in Abu Dhabi in, in 2017. And again, as you say, Mohammed bin Zayed has been the key decision maker for so many years within the UAE. But again, that, that dynamic, is dynamic of a president and a president, how do you think the relationship between the UAE and France might develop now? And I suppose as an extension of that, the UAE and the rest of Europe slash European Union? Well, I think relations with France are probably the closest that the UAE has with any member state in the European Union. They've been working very closely also on Libya, um, where actually the UAE and France have been often at odds with Italy, for example. And so I think, and also on uh, Islam and Islamists and the sort of perceived threat from Islamism, uh, Macron and the, uh, the Emiratis seem to be very much on the same page there as well. So I think uh, Macron's visit will be very interesting to watch because it is a probably a much closer relationship that uh, Mohammed bin Zayed has than, for example, he has with Boris Johnson or probably most other European leaders as well. And uh, I think it will be interesting to see what level of delegation other countries in Europe send and also other countries in the Gulf as well. For example, will Mohammed bin Salman go to Saudi Arabia, to UAE as well? And if so, when? As you say, we saw the Sultan of Oman today and he was the first other Gulf leader to go. So I think it will be very interesting over the next couple of days to see which leaders go and which kind of what level of representation different countries do send. Again, with, with the United States and Kamala Harris visiting on, on Monday, the mm. relations between the UAE and the US have been quite strong in, in terms of military partnerships and uh, defence cooperation. But that seems to be mostly during the, the Trump administration and with the change of power to, to President Biden, relations have really turned quite sour between the two countries. Again, do you see this as being an opportunity to reset that relationship and try and strike some new agreements, maybe? Well, the relationship certainly has been tested. I think the UAE ambassador to the US uh, said in April or in March that it was undergoing a stress test. And uh, it's uh, being tested by a whole number of issues, one of which is also there's a trial about to begin in September of a senior Trump administration uh, figure who is be, has been accused of being an undeclared UAE agent. Mm. And so that will begin in September, and that may overshadow the beginnings of Mohammed bin Zayed's uh, term in head of state. So I don't think it will necessarily... Uh, be resolved in one visit. And of course, Biden himself isn't going. Mm. And Biden himself doesn't seem to have had much success in speaking with Mohammed bin Zayed in recent weeks and months either. Um, I think they spoke on Friday, but that was the first phone call for some time. And that was probably a matter of diplomatic courtesy. So I think the relationship with the US is going to remain probably quite rocky. 
at least for the next couple of years. And I think everybody in the US and also the US partners around the world, especially those in the UAE that did have a, a very close relationship with the Trump administration are probably beginning to, to look ahead and to see what happens in the US first in the congressional midterm elections. And then in terms of 2024, and I think uh, certainly in terms of the Biden Kamala Harris administration, they it is don't see eye to eye on a number of issues, and they're convinced that the U.S. is disengaging from the Gulf, and so that perception drives a lot of policy thinking in the UAE, and that's why they're driving relationships with with Russia, with China, with India. They're trying to diversify just because they're not sure if the U.S. is going to be sticking around for the next uh, for the foreseeable future. And the, the U.S. was one of the signatories and uh, one of the negotiators for the Abraham Accords and normalizing <laughs> Middle Eastern relations with, with Israel. Do you see the uh, Abraham Accords and those normalization treaties expanding across uh, the wider Middle East and Gulf region? And actually, the tide will start to change in many countries and more nations might start to begin to not necessarily sign a formal agreement, but certainly make their relationship with Israel less tense, less frosty, and lead to more diplomatic ties? Well, I think we've already seen that happen in the sense that Qatar has been working with Israel on Gaza. The Saudis are less... uh, Well, the Saudis are much more open than they used to be about at least acknowledging that they have a certain overlap in terms of interest with Israel. They haven't joined the Abraham Accords. In fact, no other country has joined since the Trump administration left office in 2021. So uh, that perhaps indicates that it was the Trump administration's transactional approach that kind of got countries to kind of join in. On the other hand, as you say, the, the Abraham Accords continue. Nobody has joined it, but nobody's also pulled out. Mm. So they have become a feature of the landscape. And I think in a lot of other countries, a lot of other countries around the Middle East do work with Israel. There's much more of a pragmatic relationship where they work with Israel, where they have common sets of interests without necessarily going that extra mile and fully normalizing the political and diplomatic relationship. And of course, over the last few days, we've seen a lot of anger in much of the Middle East over the, uh, the shooting of the Al Jazeera journalist and the way that a funeral was then uh, attacked by, by security personnel. And so again, there are still a lot. There's still a lot of um, pent up uh, anger on both sides that could could can still be an obstacle to formal normalization. But I think the Abraham Accords have revealed there is much more of a pragmatic uh, approach to to living and working with Israel. And it's not just in the countries that have normalized; it's in countries that haven't too. And in those countries, they just work with Israel. They just don't openly do so with a fully-fledged uh, political relationship. And another political relationship that seems to be developing over the, over recent months seems to be one between the UAE and Syria. And uh, there's a big event of a, a visit by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad uh, to uh, Abu Dhabi, and he was uh, welcomed full military guard and honours, etc. Uh, so do, do you think the Middle East and other countries will start to see Syria as perhaps a partner, someone that they just simply have to work without convenience and, and pragmatism now and just accept that Assad has won this awful and bloody civil war and just have to accept and learn to work with him? Well, yes. In fact, the, the normalization of 2022 is the normalization of relations with, with, with the Syrian leadership, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the visit of Assad to Dubai and Abu Dhabi in March was... Uh, 
it was transformative in the sense that it broke the uh, it sort of broke the um, the Arab uh, wall that had been erected against him since 20, 2011. And uh, in fact, it was with the UAE, one of the most powerful states in the Arab world, was was really quite something. Now that again hasn't been followed by any visits to Saudi Arabia, for example, or any other. Um, key Arab states like Egypt, but it's certainly been a, a big uh, statement to the effect that um, Assad is going to stay in power, whether we like it or not. I think the UAE is being a, has to be a bit cautious just because there are still international or US sanctions on any companies or entities that work with regime uh, officials and entities in Syria. So there's going to be a, a careful, I think, uh, way forward in terms of how cooperation proceeds. But, but the fact that it was the UAE, I think, sent a, a very strong message. And the UAE and Assad both have an interest in, in sort of presenting kind of non-Islamist, non-religious authoritarian strongmen. It's very much an Emirati model of a sort of authoritarian strongman fighting back against, uh, as they see it, um, political and religious opposition. And so in that sense, it's probably no surprise that it was the UAE that uh, was the first to sort of bring Assad back in from the cold in the way yeah. they did. Yeah. And again, an, another partnership that seems to be uh, developing quite quite quickly seems to be that between Mohammed bin Zayed and the, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. The, they've got a, a close relationship and there have been a number of questions recently regarding uh, human rights there's been there's always been many human rights issues relating to the United Arab Emirates but in particular around that relationship with China and uh, the we'll say alleged genocide of Uyghur Muslims there's been reports of UAE sending Uyghurs who fled China uh, back to the mainland to uh, end up back in those internment camps so how, how do you see that dynamic playing out between the UAE and China will that relationship go deeper and would that be de- detrimental for Western interests in, in the Middle East? Well, that relationship is very strong on an economic and an energy level. And increasingly, it's becoming an, an important political and to some extent, a security and defense relationship too. And the, the fact that it is becoming more political and more focused on security and defense is causing a lot of consternation, especially with the US, just because there's such a strong existing defense and security relationship between the US and the UAE. Mm. And the uh, allegations that the UAE, that China was uh, constructing some sort of military facility within an Emirati port last year caused a real shock, I think, in Washington that uh, this could be happening. And it seems that the F-35 fighter deal, fighter jet deal that the Trump administration pushed through with such fanfare on the last on the last day in office, actually, now, it seems that that may now not go ahead. And one of the reasons is because of, of the relationship with China, because the, the technology is so sensitive that if it were to be transferred and it would be in such proximity to Chinese uh, systems, it could be vulnerable to... to um, uh, it could be vulnerable in a security way. So that relationship is something that U.S. officials are pushing back very hard on. They're trying to tell the Emiratis that uh, you can have an economic relationship with China, just don't let them into the what they call the strategic space. Yeah. But the fact that the UAE is still doing so 
I think, shows that the UAE is willing to stand up to the US on this. They're willing to dare the US to say, okay, pick us, choose us or China. And um, the UAE is not going to do that. Neither will any other Gulf country. And we've seen that also over Russia and Ukraine. You know, if we in the West think that we can say, you have to choose us or them, they're not going to do that. And so I think, again, they're flexing their muscles and making it very clear that they're going to diversify security and defense relationships, even if it means that that impinges upon some of the existing relationships. And in, in the case of the F-35, that does seem to have had an impact in terms of not actually, well, not leading to a follow through on an arms deal that had been agreed because they can't have it both ways in every aspect. But I think with China, they, the UAE is making it very clear that um, in the long run, they think that the economic and commercial relationship with China will be much more important to them than, than with the, the US, at least in terms of the rest you know, the next coming decades. So, so just to bring our conversation back specifically to the UAE and Mohammed bin Zayed. Now, obviously, he'd been crown prince and de facto ruler for so, so long before his accession to the presidency. Do you think by having that role for such a long period of time, do you think he's actually redefined the role of what a crown prince would do and sort of made it its own position on the international stage. And mm. as an extension of that, who are the, the runners and riders, if you like, to take over from him in that, that role? Well, I'd be very surprised if we saw such a powerful crown prince emerge under Mohammed bin Zayed, because I think it was a function of Mohammed bin Zayed being the de facto decision maker that made him powerful, not that he was crown prince of Abu Dhabi, it was that there was a vacuum at the very top and he would he was the one that filled that vacuum. I'd be very, I mean, he's only 61 years old. I think he could, well, barring ill health, of course, mm. or something unforeseen happening to him. I, I could see that he could have at least 20 years of a fairly active rule and then even further potentially. But so I could see at least 20 years of Mohammed bin Zayed being a, a very visible and strong presence on the, on the stage. In terms of who could succeed him as, Crown Prince in Abu Dhabi, this is, I think, the current question. I think there's probably quite a lot of negotiation going on behind the scenes in Abu Dhabi. Um, whether he will appoint one of his brothers, probably Sheikh Taknoon, who's a national security advisor, or one of his sons, um, probably Khalid bin Mohammed bin Zayed, who has been increasingly, I think, entrusted with economic and political portfolios in Abu Dhabi in recent years. Now, what's happened so far has been that since Sheikh Zayed, the founding father of the UAE, since he passed away in 2004, power has passed from one brother to another with Mohammed bin Zayed. But I suspect that Mohammed bin Zayed might want to institute a system like King Salman has done in Saudi Arabia, where he then moves from brother to brother to go from father to son. So I suspect he'll probably want to uh, in, put his, one of his sons into the crown prince. The question then is, will his brothers, who are quite powerful, who have until recent years, I think, operated on the expectation that one of them would eventually become crown prince, will they accept it? I suspect they probably will, but uh, you know, what would be the trade-off in terms of intra-family politics? You know, what will they have to, you know, will they be given greater government portfolios, for example, in terms of accepting that they won't be in line. I think there's probably a process of negotiation going forward, which may take several days or even a week to resolve. And then whether he chooses a brother or a son, I think will be indicative of, of, of the next generation, of whether he's going to go down a generation. But, but certainly I think it could be quite a, 
powerful leader for another 20 years at least, just given his his age. Finally, then, now, now that he has taken over the, the presidency, what type of leader can we expect Mohammed bin Zayed to, to be? How, how can we expect him to act within the, the region, within the Gulf region, but also on the international stage? Will we see someone who's perhaps more protectionist, more someone who wants to prioritise the, the Middle East and the Gulf more than, say, collaborate with other Western or, or even further Eastern partners? Well, I think we've already seen over the past two years that the UAE has become much less confrontational, much less assertive in its foreign policies. And I think that's because they'd maybe overreached. They had overreached in Yemen, where they had really been put to a standstill, and also in Libya, where Khalifa Haftar, the warlord who they had supported, failed his attempt in 2019 to take Tripoli. And so they were facing a lot of pushback, especially from Turkey, but I think pragmatically, Mohammed bin Zayed has reshifted. He's sort of shifted away from that confrontational approach, realized perhaps it wasn't bringing the benefits he was hoping it would. And so he's made up with Qatar. He's uh, made up with Turkey. He went to Turkey last uh, autumn, and then the Turkish president Erdogan was in Abu Dhabi in, in, in February, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen already over the last few months, irrespective of whether he was going to become president or not, was that... Um, there had been a shift in UAE foreign policy. Now, that could be contingent just upon international circumstances, of course, Biden being, or at least Trump no longer being in power as well, was something I think that had to do with it. But uh, it does seem at least that Mohammed bin Zayed has learned from some of the overreach, perhaps, from some of the assertive policies that didn't lead to uh, results maybe that he'd hoped for back in, in the 2000s, or 2010s at least. I think he'll still put the UAE first. I think he'll he'll still make it very clear that he won't pick and choose sides in the sense of the US vis-a-vis Russia or China. I think he'll continue to diversify relationships and to economically, I think he'll continue to look east. I think the UAE's economic trajectory is very much focused on Asia. They see Asia as their economic and energy markets for the 21st century. And of course, in this moment of also greater focus on energy transition and uh, net zero and climate targets. And I think, I think certainly in that respect as well, there'll be an increasing focus on, on Asia, perhaps if there's more pressure on Western companies and oil and gas companies in the West to, to move away from collaboration with, um, with energy partners like the UAE. I think that, that will be, a, again, a factor in shifting energy, I'm sorry, shifting Emirati focus towards um, Asian countries and towards the towards an eastward uh, rather than westward outlook, at least in terms of economic and energy policy going forward. Okay, Christian Kultz-Ulrichson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me.